Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved like all of my guests are is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. This episode of Conversations with Big Rich is brought to you by the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. The mission of the Hall of Fame is to educate and inspire present and future generations of the off-road community by celebrating the achievements of those who came before. We invite you to help fulfill the mission of the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Join, partner, or donate today. Legends live at ormhoff.org. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Big Rich. This week's episode is going to actually be split into the next two episodes, this week and next. Had a conversation you'll hear with Bob Bauer. It was a record interview length of time for us, almost three hours. So to make it easier to listen for everybody, we are cutting it into two parts, and you'll hear the first part right now. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have none other than Mr. History himself and off-road, Bob Bauer. He'll probably be embarrassed by that kind of an intro, but if anybody if anybody listening knows Bob Bauer, you know what I mean. And for those that have never heard of Bob and have never talked to him, you are going to find out. Sit back, enjoy this conversation, because Bob is an encyclopedia of great information. Bob, thank you for coming on board. Well, Rich, it's my pleasure. I, uh, I'm not used to doing things like this. And so uh, I'm really curious to see how we do and how the listeners like it. That's, that's, that's going to be it. Okay. Well, I'm positive that the listeners are going to like it. I've been really looking forward to getting you on the air here and uh, discussing your history. So let's jump right in. Where did you grow up? <laughs> like like I ever really did grow up. But, um, <laughs> and I tell the truth, you know, it's just like somewhere outside the La Brea Tar Pits. I remember playing with Saber Two Tigers as a child. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a Southern California guy, and uh, uh, specifically in the San Fernando Valley, and, and that became significant because uh, the stuff we did then, back you know, back in those days, is sort of what got me a launch into a. a well, in a car career, you know, I'm a car guy who got lucky and ended up having a career being a car guy. So, shoot, the valley wasn't bad. That's where car things happened. Right. So growing up in the valley, it was nice that you're you're young enough that there were cars. Some people would argue that, but the car, was it always four wheels or did you ever get involved with two wheels? You know, I, I somehow missed out on two wheels. I mean, I had a motorcycle and, and a, a little Honda, and it was fun. But I think that the people around cars is what made me stick. I mean, the, the car is a machine, but the other people who appreciate the machine seem to be around cars more than bikes. Bikes was a solitary thing. The cars just screwed me. And, you know, it's not like at that age, Rich, that you have a uh, – 
a plan in mind. You just go where it feels good, and it felt good to be around cars. That was how it all got going. How did uh, how did that interest in cars become a driving force or an influence in your life? Was your were your parents in into cars, or was it just just something that one morning you woke up and you know you, you were like, <laughs> I got to go out and work on the dad's car or something? Yeah, I, I know my my mom and dad, my whole family uh, were not car people at all. You know, what I mean, it's like. Okay, it was a car. He went to went to places. My dad had an old car that he used to, to drive to the airport and back. He was an airline pilot, so he parked and leave the car for four or five days. Didn't didn't want to take a good one there. So, cars was not a big deal except for me. And I remember reading, uh, not really reading as much as looking at the captions and the pictures in magazines like Motor Trend and Road and Track. And I think that was actually before there was any real off road four wheeling you know, magazines out there, give it a date. Let's see. That was probably in the, in the late fifties, maybe this one. I remember I, I had this memory, Rich, of, of, uh, pawing through a magazine, looking at the pictures. I think it was motor trend and the pictures were uh, highlighting an article, um, about the Panamericana, Panamerica road races, but the Panamericana rally, I think is a road races. Oh yeah. talked about the bill Strop teams. Right. And the Lincoln Mercury's and that they would they would go you know, all throughout South America or not South America, but Mexico and, and all those areas. And they would have these magazine rallies. And it was like, oh, wow. You know, <laughs> it got me. And it never it never really left. And so, you know, I was always a guy who liked like cars. I think one of the things is so stupid, but it's silly. I remember sitting in the back seat of my parents' car when they would be driving somewhere because they didn't have freeways back then. You know, if you were going to go from the San Fernando Valley to Pasadena, you needed to pack a pack of, you know, a lunch. <laughs> but I remember sitting you in the You do nowadays with freeways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you just have eight lanes of it, you know, part, already parked together. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I remember looking out of the back window, identifying cars. Back then, you, you could see the difference between a Lincoln and a Cadillac and a Chevy, and a Plymouth. <laughs> and so I just wandered off in my own little world, you know, looking at cars. There's a Chevy. Oh, there's a 50. That's a 57 Chevy. That's a 56. Oh, look at that Ford. Look at the fins, you know. And then I looked at the bumpers on the Pontiacs. Well, it's, it's all, it just became almost visceral for me, Rich. I, I just, that's how I guess I became a car guy. And, uh, and I didn't know it really at the time. The, um, the, the stuff I was reading about Strop and the, those great Pan American road races uh, was really the the, the kernel that, that had me become an off-road guy. I, I had no idea how strong the, the urges were down inside until they got triggered one day. <laughs> that was something. So what was the first vehicle that you got to drive? It was, it was, I couldn't give you the, the model year, but it was an old military Jeep. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, Jeep was my first, and it was a three-speed. I this was, I think I was thirteen, probably. Yeah, I was probably about thirteen. My my godparents uh, were, were lived up in Lake Arrowhead, which is um, above the mountains. It's in the mountains above the uh, L.A. area, and uh, they lived there, and they owned a little water company for this Sky Forest uh, little community. Well, the, the 
water company had pumps located various spots in the mountain. And I learned to drive while checking on those pumps. You had to, you had to, you had to do the pump check twice a day. And while my godfather was the one driving the Jeep, at some point he put me, put me in the seat and said, here, here's how to do this. And, and so, uh, how, how hard, <clears throat> how bad could you do it in a, in a five mile an hour Jeep uh, on a Jeep trail? What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's what got me started. Uh, that was the very first car I drove. And, um, I really liked it. Of course, sometime later in my life, I remember stealing my mom's car, like every other kid, and taking a <laughs> joy ride at night. <laughs> and she didn't know I knew how to drive. So <clears throat> I, I could not have been the guilty party. It's probably my older sister. <laughs> <laughs> There's always, that's great when you can deflect blame to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was the youngest, and so I got really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, that was the first. That was the first drive. That was it. Marked me. Okay, what was your first car? Well, my first car or was truck. a fifty-five. No, no, it was a car. Okay, it was a it was a fifty-five Chevy, and um, two door. I. Oh yeah, yeah. It was a two door. It was a Del Rey. Nice. Which was a, a two door with a post, but it was a light car. You know, it was uh, it, it was one of those. They made salesman's cars, which were pretty much not much of a back seat, but it was a six-cylinder, you know, it was a 235-6, a 235-cubic-inch six-cylinder engine with a, with a three-speed. And I really wanted this car. I'd wanted it for probably a year and a half. It was owned by uh, a neighborhood guy, another kid. We were kids then, Herb Stein. And Herb had this 55 Chevy, and, man, you know, I just loved it. Somehow I found a way to earn uh, $320. <laughs> and uh, I went across the street to Herb's place and said, Herb, you know, I, I want to buy your car. Here's my money. And somehow we did it. And that became my project. You know, it, uh, <laughs> it needed paint. So, I uh, I don't I don't remember the detail of how this all occurred, but I do remember I worked I went to work at a body shop as a painter's helper, which means you know I breathed it and I inhaled it and uh, then I cleaned up after myself, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that and that got me a paint job on the, on the car, um, and it also taught me a lot about cars. I had no idea all this stuff happens you know around cars. Working at a body shop and see how they're made. Um, cause you're putting them back together. Right. And so it, it just further immersed me in car, 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 car guy, car guy, car guy. And, um, my family was happy with me because they didn't understand cars, <clears throat> but Hey, look at the little kid. He's working. So that's, that was a big deal. <laughs> so through school, did you take any tech classes, um, like auto shop or things like that? Were that, were they offered? No, they, uh, they might've been offered, but I took print shop. Oh, it's, it's, it was, it was an easy a, <laughs> I mean, think about, think about it. It was an easy a, we used the letterpress printers, meaning that they came and they clamped and together and printed on whatever, whatever you slid into the spot where the paper was supposed to be and hope you got your hand out in time. And, and I, that's where I went. I wasn't a car guy, uh, by practice then. I think it was, it was kind of like, I don't know, like a little seed inside growing. 
but I didn't know it. But I, so I did print shop, and the car guys were all racers, and they were uh, oh greasers. Do you remember that term, Rich? Oh, greasers. Yeah. Oh yes. Ah, I forgot about that. My dad was one of um, those. Ah, well, I you know in high school I never really had a a specific crowd. My sister did, and you know everybody had their little clique. But I couldn't stand it. So I was like a little part of everybody's clique. <laughs> at, at lunchtime, you know, you'd go out in the quad and have lunch. But instead of sitting with your buddies or your friends, I was just always walking around talking. Hey, what's up? What do you see? I haven't talked to you in a while. Blah, 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 blah. Kind of like today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe that was a habit that started longer ago than I realized. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, but I, and I didn't get my car until after high school. I was not allowed. Oh. You, know, you know, yeah, my mom and dad said, you know, you, you're not allowed to have a car until after you get out of high school and whatever car you want, you got to buy. That's why it actually took me, I think, two years to cough together $320, as I recall. So it was, so it was a big day, but it was after I graduated. That car and that graduating and getting the car opened up my world. Truly. It's not like I left home. I came home at nights. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> the rest of the and, time you were uh, out driving and exploring. Yeah, doing stuff, going places. Um, I had no idea how, you know, the thought today of going to places I did in a 55 Chevy with a six-cylinder engine. It was beautiful blue by then, though. I had nice paint. <laughs> it just It just didn't go very well. Um, you know, we wouldn't do this today, Rich. We'd want air conditioning. We'd want, uh, you know, GPS and all the, all the traffics. We'd want downhill descent button on the dash. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah. But See, it was fun. Yeah. My first car was a 54 Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, the old oval window. It was the first year from the oval window. And then, uh. I was the third owner. My uh, my dad's best friend, who he went into the military with, bought a Volkswagen when they were stationed over in Germany. Brought it back in like seven or fifty seven, fifty eight, and then Ooh. he had it until I purchased it in seventy two, seventy three, seventy seventy three, maybe seventy four, because I bought it before I could actually drive. And again, it was one of those things I had to earn the money, and I had 300 bucks, and I wanted a Fiat because um, a friend of mine was looking at Fiats, and I thought, oh, I'd be really cool. And then I saw the Datsun um, 510, and I wanted oh. one of those really bad and couldn't find anything in the price range. And then uh, Ken Hoffling was the guy's name, had that 54 bug, and he goes – well, how much money you got? And I said, 300 bucks. And he goes, I'll let this bug go for 300 bucks. And I looked at it and I was like, sold. <laughs> so I had it for oh, a year or two before I got my license and then uh, just worked on it. And that's where I really learned. You know, I started taking auto shop uh, to get, to get all my English requirements out of the way. I took, I did yearbook staff. So I yeah. cheated the system there, like you were talking about print shop EZA. 
Same thing. Easy A. Yeah, easy A. <laughs> Same thing with yearbook staff. You know, you, you got to, I got to write notes for all my friends to cut class and stuff. It was great. But that, that bug was an important part of that because we could load everybody, you know, load a couple friends into it and go surf or do whatever we wanted to do, go play, um, go cruise, you know, just find trouble to get into. So, yeah, I understand the whole uh, concept of once you got a set of wheels, the world became it became bigger yet smaller. Yes, exactly right. But can you imagine how horribly your life would have gone had you got the fiat? Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been working on it every day cuz my buddy's 124 spider, he worked on it every day. <laughs> Fix it again, Tony. Be... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and well, you know, the car it got me out and around, but it also forced me to to, to keep working uh, because even though gas was oh, 24, 27 cents a gallon, and if you bought eight gallons, you got a free set of silverware or something, <laughs> um, I needed gas, you know, and uh, I grew up in a neighborhood where uh, it was like everybody went down to good old Tom Johnson's Union Oil. Tom Johnson, 76, down there at Woodman and Ventura. Been on the intersection since 1926. So it was like everybody in the neighborhood used that gas station. Right. And, and many of the young guys, I was one of them, ended up working at the gas station. That was like a, a like a rite of passage. you got to go through Tom Johnson's to get out to the real world. You know? <laughs> and uh, and that furthered my, you know, my dedication or, or infection and i'm not sure which with the car you know and now i could put the thing up in the air Ooh, i could get underneath and look at stuff you know and i wanted it to sound better so rather than buy an exhaust system i just pounded holes in the existing muffler <laughs> work <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know diddly i mean i i really didn't know diddly about cars until i went to that gas station do you know do and, you realize uh, that that was your first step into being a redneck Punching holes in the muffler to make it sound louder. <laughs> I like the idea, though. <laughs> I'm proud of that. Yep, it, it's better. It was better doing that than cutting it off. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. And uh, man, but that that gas station also caused caused change for me. You know, it's funny, Rich. You don't know the stuff that's happening until it's in the rearview mirror. Isn't that odd? True. But I remember. Uh, this was the kind of gas station too, Rich. That when when a customer comes in, you go out there and you you give them their full tank or two bucks, whatever it was. But it was religiously all the glass front and back windows. Check the oil, check the water. Uh, everybody, every car. So there was this one customer who came in. Oh my goodness, I have totally blanked on his last name now. Huh. He, but he had a nineteen sixty six zero Corvette. You know, the Corvettes were interesting then, but I, it was like I had never in my mind thought, oh, shoot, I could do a Corvette. No, I had a 55 Chevy that I was punching holes in to make it look good, you know. <laughs> and so he came in the first time I saw him and went out there and washed his front windshield. And then I washed the back window with the, uh, you know, the spritzer bottle and a paper towel. And he nearly jumped out of the car. Yeah, well, I was all over me. Stop, stop. He says, stop. What, 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 what? 
back window in that car. It was plexiglass, and all I was doing was scratching it. He and I had a relationship at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately for both of us, he was the adult. <laughs> and uh, and realized, you know, this this kid just didn't know what was didn't know what was what. Next time he came in, he had a uh, a small bottle of this stuff called Mirror Glaze. He says, "Here, use this and this rag on my back window," and he's and he left it with me. Nice. And I, th- yeah, and I thought, wow, you know. So every time he came in, that back window got better and better and better. And um, I just loved his car. Well. And he knew it. So pretty soon, you know, I mean, pretty soon. This is a year later, you know, he's still coming in, and it's glad to see each other. Trouble is, he got sick. He died. Oh. The uh, owner of that Corvette couldn't drive that Corvette anymore. His wife knew about how much I liked the car. She came to the gas station and said, you know, you'd probably like to have this Corvette. And I said, well, yes, I would. But I, I don't have thousands of dollars she, and she asked me she says well how long would it take you to put together 1500 and i said well i think about 90 days about three months <laughs> and i did and i bought the car nice and uh, uh it was you know i had no idea what i had just done so you know because you're a valley guy you got yourself you new to you corvette it was, oh, I don't know, was it six, seven years old, eight years old? I can't remember what it was. The 60. You go to Van Nuys Boulevard. That's where you go. Cruise. And Yeah, you bet, buddy. You got to get a show off. And so I did. And I saw this, this parking lot at an old Dodge dealer that had, had gone out of business, but the parking lot was still there. It was like seven or eight Corvettes all parked in this one lot. And it wasn't like they were for sale. It was people. It was their Corvettes. And so I, I drove in there and said, you know, basically, que pasó? What's this? What's this all about? Oh, well, we're a club, and and uh, it's called Corvettes Unlimited, and we meet down here anytime, and you know, this is our lot. Our lot. I said, yeah, yeah, we took it over. Oh. <laughs> well, I got involved with that Corvette club. And um, then one of my ugly sides sort of showed up at the club meetings. They had a meeting every Wednesday night and they had an event every every weekend. We'd go somewhere and do something. But during the meetings, um, I, I came to learn about myself, Rich, that I'm a guy who does not lack an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you, you've been around the block a while and you've been in clubs and organizations. What do they do to the guy who has the opinions? Typically make him the president. <laughs> That's kind of what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. That's why I'll never join another club. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it, you know, it's like leaves a mark. And so, um, so cause I had these opinions, I started doing the meetings every Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, you brought the meeting to order and you did your, you did your meeting. And every Wednesday or every uh, weekend we did a thing and there was another Wednesday night meeting. Well, this, the club, Corvettes Unlimited, belonged to a larger body, uh, a council of clubs. It's called uh, the Western States Corvette Council. And um, they had membership rules and all that kind of stuff. And we were part of it and we paid our dues or whatever it was we did. And uh, I, I got a notice 
uh, from the council that at a council meeting that had happened the week prior, uh, they changed the membership and the council rules that caused our club to be tossed out. And I thought that was just wrong. I had an opinion. <laughs> and so uh, I said, you know, you can't kick us out, make a rule that, that we don't know about, and then 10 minutes later, throw us out. You know, you got to give us a chance. And they basically said, well, if you don't like it, change it yourself. Run for president. <laughs> so, so, so. Challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah, you got me going here, dude. You know, it's a rule we called each other then. And um, so I, I ran, then I ran the meetings every Wednesday night in the club. And then once a month for the Western States Corvette Council, where all the delegates from all over the Western States, you know, would come together for a big council meeting and I would run that meeting. What I didn't know at the time, Rich, was I was getting trained as a speaker. Right. It, it, it just never occurred to me because I was busy doing other things. I had to speak to do it. But so I, I was. And that, that led to uh, me learning about B.F. Goodrich was starting to show up in the, in, the, in the magazines with this fat, wide tire that no one had ever seen before. And uh, I was always interested in that because we were autocrossing at the time. And you know, I, was, I've, I wish I could remember the sources for all this information, Rich. Jesus, I remember reading something somewhere that, uh, the National Council of Corvette Clubs was getting all sorts of sponsorship and love from B.F. Goodrich Company. But my council in the West, the 22 Western states, were being ignored. So I had an opinion. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, I finally, well, it, it, the, the two councils ran the country. You know, the National was east of, of uh, the Rockies and we were west of the Rockies. But we had reciprocity uh, when we had a convention. We would invite the officers of their organization to our convention. If they could get themselves there, everything was comped once they did. Uh, but they had to get themselves there. I went back to, oh, I don't know, Wichita or Indianapolis. Indianapolis. The National Council of Corvette Clubs was having a convention in Indianapolis, and I was the Western States guy, and I went back there to be the, be the honored guest and all that. Well, I found a BFG guy, and uh, I had an opinion there, too. I told him, I said, hey, listen, you know, you guys at BFG are throwing all your sponsorship money at the National Council of Corvette Clubs. Uh, when they are following all the trends we set, you know, they're following us. Wouldn't you like to hook up with the people who set the trends instead of follow them? That was my pitch. And, uh, and that started a relationship that, uh, between me and BFG that exists even through today. And I'm trying to think of the year. That was 1973 in that, in that meeting. Okay. And uh, I've been part of the BFG family ever since, even though I haven't been an employee since mid-90s. Um, and, and so anyway, they came out and said well what's your convention all about <clears throat> and uh, the guy that was running the show remember him uh he was an ohio guy and he'd never been west of denver in his life and i realized that we're talking to real people here not corporate uh i don't know how do you see that without being negative but 
sometimes corporate people have a job they don't know anything about it. It's not visceral with them. There's no passion. There's no you know, right. gut. It's just transactional. So this guy, Lance, I meet him at LAX, and he gets off the airplane, and his mouth is going like a little duck's butt. Unbelievable. He says, Bob, he says, you can't believe it. He says, for the last 45 minutes of that flight, we were over L.A., and we never changed directions. <laughs> <laughs> You've never seen a big city, I guess. Um, and in 73, it's amazing he could see it through the smog. Isn't that a fact? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so uh, I, I kind of I told him, hey, listen, you, know, you need to support our convention. I said, here's, what I, here's my commitment to you. Gary is his name, Gary Pace. So Gary, I said, I will guarantee you a buck ten back in sales for every buck you spend on us. And I let that sit, and that's how it started. And he, and you know, so BFG got we got hooked up with Corvette people. I got hooked up with BFG, and um, the world was all all wonderful. And um, then I got a phone call and from BFG from Gary Sky Gary, and somewhere I think in nineteen, I want to say seventy five. 72, 3, 4, somewhere 72, 3, 4, 5, right in that area because we had a relationship with him. You know, we were, we were already friends. You know, we've been, this has been in business for each other for a while. And he says, hey, Bob, he says, you know, we really like, you know, the way you do your stuff, blah, 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 blah. You ever think about going to work for us? You know, so we, we'd like to talk to you about maybe maybe taking a job. And, of course, me, I'm a bachelor in Southern California having a good time chasing women um <laughs> catching them with a the corvette you know. <laughs> well with a corvette yeah well of course you know i'm trolling <laughs> <laughs> all lines out and it's, oh yeah and it worked <laughs> um so my my first thought was oh yeah that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna leave southern california for akron ohio you know <laughs> yes again i said gary yes again well, he did guess again, and uh, I went to work for him and relocated. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah, and I, and I had a relationship. I was, I was you know, seeing, seeing one gal pretty hard and heavy. Um, she really mattered to me. But I realized, you know, I can't take her. This is back in the 70s. You don't just hop in an airplane and take off and, you know. So I said, I said to her, I said, well, I said, I'm taking a job in Akron, Ohio. I'm going to leave town and uh, I'm going to say goodbye to you. I suggest, you know, I can't take you with me. You go out, you go back to the, go back to the people emporium, find yourself another guy. This one's going away. And uh, a year later, we got engaged. <laughs> wow. Great. Yeah, but she was in California, so we've rectified all that. And we've been married now for, this is our 44th year, I think, 43rd, one of those. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah, I'm surprised myself. <laughs> so, but but the car, you know, the tire job involved me doing more of the things that I realized I'd been trained to do and didn't know it. Was, that's speaking. I didn't, they were, they, the company, BFG, was trying actually an experience experiment with me i i didn't know i was a lab rat until later um they had tried to get hooked up with with clubs that was really part of their plan and what they were learning was that you can't take a tire engineer who has a you know a, a shirt pocket full of appliances 
<laughs> send him to a Corvette club or a, you know, MG club or a Porsche club and have him talk about tires and have people be interested. And the reason was is because their engineers are tend to be pretty structured. Dry. Uh, pretty fact-based. Yeah, dry. Yeah. I mean, it isn't about emotion with them. It's about other things. And they, that dog didn't hunt. It wasn't working. So they said, hey, 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 why don't we hire one of those enthusiast guys uh, and see if we can teach him tires? And, you know, I mean, if it doesn't work out, this is corporate America. Bing, you're done. You know, sorry. It didn't work. Well, as it turned out, it did work. Um, they started teaching me tires, and I started speaking to, to audiences, to classes, to seminars. My, my first first year at BFG, hell, my first day as an official employee, I landed in Fort Wayne, Indiana. There was a tire plant there, and I was supposed to teach a seminar, and I didn't know squat about tires. I'll tell you, Rich, that was the, that was the most excruciating thing that I, I could imagine for those people in the audience <laughs> <laughs> just, it was just ugly but uh by and by you know I, I i finally learned some stuff and got better at it. and that was a 10 city tour we did we did uh three day seminars in 10 cities in two months or some dumb thing but that that became a, a um an annual deal and so speaking again started paying for me you know, started taking off. And, um, heck, that's, that's how it got going. And, and, and I think within the very first year, I think it was the first year, BFG had, was introducing this all-terrain radio tire. No one had ever built a, a, a big, light truck size, you know, radio tire. There are always biases. Used to, you know, the, the tires of the day were Armstrong True Tracks and, and Norsemans and, yep. Gateway and Sandblaster, those are all decent, good tires, but they were not radial. And and BFG was the first company in the country, in the world, well, first in the country, U.S., to figure out how to build radials, and they were hot at it. So I was brought to the Mint 400. Um, and as a guy just to work contingency here, pass out stickers, do this, wear a jacket, um, stay sober. That was kind of like the marching orders. So I did. Stay sober. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, in that, I tell you. Around off-roaders? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it, you stand out pretty bad. <laughs> but, but back in those days of the mid 400, the Fremont Street was where they did their contingency. But it was absolutely a zoo. At, at, at the change of light, when the sun set and the, and the moon rose, that's when these people, these things came out of the woodwork and it was a show. So, you, you know, saying stay sober meant probably don't swallow anything. Don't inhale anything. <laughs> <laughs> it was the seventies. <laughs> it was the seventies. And, uh, so I survived the contingency day. And then they, they said, okay, you're going to go out to, uh, with all these other guys to a Ute road, UTE for the Ute Indians. You're going to go out to the Ute road. You're going to go down about four miles and you can see a tractor trailer there. That's a pit. Get in it. That's your pit. You're, you're going to volunteer to work in the pit. <laughs> oh, I said, okay, cool. Volatile. I don't know squat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Volatile. And, and I was pretty willing because it was starting to make remind me of, of those, those strap days in the Lincoln Mercury teams. And 
how they pitted out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, fixed cars. And I thought, this is going to be interesting. And um, the race starts. We're out in the pits. And I remember getting a like a stern talking to, pep talk, training orientation. Not sure what I would really label it from a fellow named Bobby Spears, who worked for Bill Strop. And as he was telling me how to pit, how to, I remember to this day, Rich, Bobby says, remember, slow hands, slow feet. He says, you'll be faster. Don't rush. You know, listen carefully, move carefully. Wow. And and then the first pit stop happened and, and I did my job. My job was to hand a wet rag and a bottle of water in the cockpit on the passenger side. It was my job. And while I was doing it, all I could think of was like, holy cats, this is the, this is what I've been dreaming about all my life. And now it's here. I, I want more of this. I want more of this. And that was the, that was the lighting of the fire <laughs> inside. And I, and I kind of like quietly said to myself, I am never going to be far from off-road racing ever again. I will have to lie, cheat, steal, do whatever I have to do to get more involved. Which, when you have a corporate job in Akron, Ohio, it presents a certain level of challenge. Somehow I pulled it off. You know, it was that, that race, the Mint, we finished that out. And shortly thereafter, in June, was the Baja 500. And it was more of the same. Except I've, I learned about voluntold and volunteers. Um, this has happened to a thousand guys, Rich, and maybe it happened to you too. Now, there I was. Now, this is my second time working in an off-road race. So, therefore, whoever the powers to be were said, oh, that one over there, he's experienced. <laughs> yeah. Find a new guy to pass the wet rag. Okay. What are we going to do with him? Give him the keys to that white pickup over there and send him down to uh, El Chinero. Well, Okay. So they hand me the keys to a pickup I've never seen. It's got a drum of fuel in the back, um, a spare tire, and a BFG banner, and some string. And they said, here, take this pickup, go down to El Chinero. Jerry McDonald in the, in the Class 8, which is the McPherson Chevy, um, is going to drive by. You are a contingency pit. Put the banner on a bush so he can see it. Stand up so he can see you. And if he wants the tire, he'll stop. Well, I had no idea where El Chinero was. What the hell? El Chinero? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, it's a spot on the road just north of the, after the five years. Like, what? Hey, Bob, just get yourself out of town. Can you do that? I didn't realize how hard that was, but I did. <laughs> and they said, just just stop and ask people along the way, hey, where's El Chinero? And so I did. I would stop about every 15 miles. I'd see some guys stop and say, where's El Chinero? And keep on going. Keep on going. Well, I, I, I learned about being a volunteer. <laughs> I got back and Jerry drove right by. He didn't want the tire. He didn't want the fuel. And he didn't even look at me, frankly. <laughs> so I, I said, well, okay, my job's done. I load the tire back up and found my way back to Ensenada. And then, and then my Baja 500 was over. I got dinner and had a beer. And that was that. I was happy. I'd done something. The next off-road race, they tell me, find someone to give these keys to. 
for oh, the, you're like for this pickup over there. <laughs> yeah, it's got some stuff in the back. It needs to get over there. <laughs> and uh, I realized I'd just been promoted again. <laughs> and so it went. Uh, I kept myself involved, and I and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was a bunch of years of just being a volunteer, a pit guy, and um, and it's amazing, Rich, what you can learn. Um, when everybody's trying to teach you something, yes, uh, it's it's so it's so simple. I wonder how come people blow it. But you know, if you just shut up and listen, people give you the answers to all the questions. <laughs> True, and, and and that's what I did. So I ended up getting a lot of experiences at a lot of things uh, around the off-road world. And you know, BFG's presence then was not as large by any stretch as, as it is today, you know, down there. Uh, well, I think we had, well, I think we only had two or three sponsored teams really. McPherson's, um, Scoop Vessels, Bob Gordon. And I'm trying to think if there's any, uh, Rod Hall. That was it. That was it. That was the whole BFG, uh, contingent. That's, that's a pretty good list of names though, for only being three or four. Yeah. Well, then they added them. Yeah. Then Charlotte Carell was, was added. She had a driver that she hired named Ivan Stewart, yeah. who who uh, used to be pretty good in buggies, they say. Ivan who? <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the long, tall guy. Um, but then it was Charlotte was there, and then Don Adams came in. And, you know, then bit by bit, the team started to, uh, or the group really, started to just get a little higher in numbers. And, and I was a happy camper, really. I, I got to go to races four or five times a year. got to learn more, do more, see more, you know, eat more dust. Shoot. <laughs> it was heaven. It was heaven. And uh, so I just did my job. And then in 82, no, 81, like Christmas Eve day of 1981, I remember being called into the boss's office. My, my primary responsibility at the company that then was to manage all of these seminar efforts. If we're doing a 56 city tour and, and it was my job to do all of it. Just, you know, well, you, Rich, you go on the road, you know, you just have to do a lot of stuff <laughs> before yes. you leave town. Don't take the keys out of your pocket till you're ready to be someplace. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was my job and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I really did. Um, because people would respond in the classes and, and you knew, well, for me, it was important um, to make a difference for somebody in those classes. And I remember this one guy, I won't ever forget him. His name is Jim Webb. He was, he worked in our company tire store in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And he was a Kentuckian, no question. And the first year that old Jim Webb came to our seminar, I remember him sitting in the back. He was wearing, uh, you know, dark blue uniform pants and a sort of a darker, but not dark, totally blue shirt with his name on it on a little uh, embroidered patch there. And there was a big splash of ATF down his shirt. It was kind of a mess. And he had, he walked, he came to the seminar with a rag hanging out of the back of his pocket, just like he did at work all day. And he didn't say a word to anybody. It was, we couldn't get this guy to talk. 
but he went to the seminar and left and we went on to cities and the next year he's back and now he's sitting halfway into the room toward the front he's got the same blue pants on there's no 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 rag and there's no atfs stains and now jim shirt is white ah. well <laughs> he's he's been moving on up <laughs> In the third year, he comes, he sits in the front row. He's wearing civvies, no uniform shirt, no nothing. And he's raising his hand to ask questions, which is cool. And uh, one of the one of the coffee breaks, you know, it's, it's always happens to the speaker. You experience it too, I'm sure. When you say, okay, it's break time. Everybody will be back here in 10 minutes, go potty and, and come on back. That's when somebody in the crowd wants to talk to the instructor or the speaker. Because there's break time, so clearly you're the speaker. You're not doing shit right now. You you can talk to me. Meanwhile, your bladder is killing you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim comes up to me and uh, in his in his his Kentucky way says, "Hey, Bob, yeah, what you got, Jim?" He says, "Bob, I, I want to thank you." He says, "For what you've done for me." He says, "Coming to these classes has taught me more." And it got me a better job, and now I'm doing better than my daddy ever did. I'll tell you, Rich, that struck home for me. That was, I realized what was at stake when you were up there talking. What was at stake is what's happening between the ears of those people sitting down there. And you never know what's going on. Right. But, but what you do know, it's, it's important to be right, and it's important to be good. It's important to connect with those people because this is a big deal to them, uh, even more than you realize, and it's a bigger deal to you too. So that's why I really loved that job, is because I could see, I could see I was making a difference, and that felt good. It was just maybe I'm selfish, but it felt good. So it's Christmas Eve day in 1981. The boss has called me in the office. And he says, Bob, he says, I want you to take over and run the off-road race program. And I said, Gary, I don't want to do that. I said, I love what I'm doing. I'm learning something here. I'm doing something here. I'm, you know, I love this training thing. I don't want to be a you know, 40-year-old race promoter is what I said to him. <laughs> Sorry, Rich. <laughs> That's all right. That's when I got started. <laughs> yeah, I know. And uh, I got started, too. I had no idea. He finally said, well. He says, you, uh, I want you to take this job. And he says, if you don't, he says, uh, you're fired. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> corporate America reared its ugly, ugly, uh, deal there. <clears throat> and so of course I took it. And I remember going home, my wife and telling her, you know, next Christmas, we're going to be back in LA with or without BFG. Cause I was pretty upset about it. I didn't like being dictated to, um, I still don't like being dictated to. <laughs> so I took the job and, um, you know, like anybody else that picks up a new endeavor. Okay. So who do we, we have these, so we have these five teams. Okay, good. Um, it's January. I'm going to go out and, and meet with my teams and go out and have dinner with each of them to interview them, talk to them, find out what's what, what do they need? What do they do? Why do you do this? That was the question I asked a lot of, why do you do this? Because you're going to get some answers. Right. Throughout those, those dinners, it became obvious to me, everybody wanted more money. 
she wanted more money. Well, one of the best kept secrets in, in the world at the time was BFG didn't have a ship, a ton of, they didn't have much, didn't have a lot of money. In fact, at the time, nobody knew this either. The company was in a hiring freeze to preserve cash and all salary employees took a 5% cut. Wow. But that wasn't for public knowledge. These people wanted more money. And I'm thinking if they only knew what I don't have, you know, so I'm not afraid to ask the question why I said, I remember asking, I said, Don, I think it's Don Adams. When I met with him, I said, why, why do you want more money? I mean, I'm not saying no, Don, just why do you need more money? Well, this is an expensive sport. Oh, yes, it is. I said, uh, uh, did, did somebody put a gun to your head to, to tell you you had to do this? <laughs> <laughs> Let them cough up some money. And, uh, but he, put, he got down to it. He says, well, listen, here's why it's expensive. It isn't the race car. He said, that's, that can take care of itself. Sponsor money takes care of that. That's about what I got. He says, but, he says, the people are expensive. He says, Bob, he says, when we run a Baja 500, he says, I have to bring three or four crews down, populate pits, bring the equipment, put them up in motels, feed them. When we do the thousand, he says, I've, I've got to put together 10 crews and feed them and house them all that time for the Baja 1000. He says, that's what gets expensive. And that was a consistent story, Rich, amongst almost everybody I spoke to. And so what I came, what I gleaned from that was, you're saying you want more money, but what you really want is less cost. And, and I can change, yeah, yeah, I can, I can change that. And so that's when it finally hit me, I can create an organization of pits for the bigger, you know, bigger picture team where we all help one another um, and preserve costs. And so I, when I started pitching to the, to the teams, I said, you know, here, here's your price of entry. If you will commit to me that you can bring your fifth wheel trader or your box truck or your tractor trader or whatever it is you've got as a pit, um, if you can commit that to me, give me two volunteers that I know I can count on and put it anywhere I want and buy me four dump cans one time. Well, pretty soon I had about 40 dump cans and I had, I had probably 25, 30 people per race that I could, I could fiddle with. And so we set up the pits and uh, I kind of set a goal for the bigger team. And I actually had Bill Stroff's help on this, a lot of it with advice and, and sitting me down and explaining how this works or what that does. You know how it is, Richie, you get somebody out there with experience and they're, and they're willing to help. And that's what Strop did for Bauer. Nice. Um, so I, I said, well, I have a goal. And that was the Baja 1000 in 82. Our, our goal is to have this thing fully functioning as a team because we have 1,150 miles of, of desert to pit for a lot of thirsty race cars. And, and I want it to work. And so everything we did all season leading up to that race was really rehearsal, practice, uh, Ferreting out the glitches, you know, finding out what you don't know. By the time the thousand rolled around, it all worked. It, it all worked. We won. We got five, six wins at that Baja 1000 amongst our team uh, and two championships locked in. 
So the, the teams liked it. And then when people would come to me to, for sponsorship, because the pits seemed to really be working well for them, guys would come to me and say, hey, listen, you know, if it's the same story, Richard, I'm sure you, you I, I love talking to you about this because I know you know. <laughs> <laughs> they, say, they say, hey, listen, you, you put your sticker on, on my truck and I will make you famous. <laughs> Golly. And so they said, I want 50,000 bucks, you know, and I want, I want, uh, I want 50,000 bucks and want 50 tires and, uh, and um, four dozen t-shirts. So I would counter with them and I'd say, well, let's see. What about four dozen t-shirts, 10 tires and pitting? <laughs> Take your 50. Ain't going to work. And they all said, sold. And that's how we started the BFG pit organization. It was a, it was really to take advantage of the uh, of the strength we had with, and, and to not not have to deal with the problem we had, which was nobody had money. Right. But, but we had we had the uh, idea to to work together to to build it into something big, and and that's really how BFG's pitting organization got started. I, I remember giving um, Frank. Frank D'Angelo was my tractor trailer driver. He wasn't an employee. He worked for a you know, industrial personnel corporation. Um, I remember giving Frank the instructions to say, you know, anytime you're driving that tractor trailer to or from a pit, especially in Baja, if someone stopped by the side of the road, you stop that tractor and trailer and you give them whatever they need. If they need oil, give them oil. You know, if you've got fuel and they need, you give them that. It just, just because I wanted, I wanted to get as many um, exposures to this pitting idea as I could. Um, I mean, I'd been to a cease candy store. I, I know about that first piece of candy that they give to you. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was really cease candy marketing that built the BFG pits. I just gave away a little bit at a time to people to sample it. So if you were running Yokohamas or Goodyear's or anything, and you had a problem, you knew you could fly into a BFG pit. You could get welded. You could get, you know, electrified you could do whatever you, you we would sit you down and feed you a hot soup or coffee or sandwich you know it was a haven in the middle of nowhere and by the time people started experiencing it they wanted to be part of it we started selling tires i'll be darned and um so one thing led to another and pretty soon everybody liked it i was only on that job for a year um because I meant what I said to my wife about, you know, next year we're going to be back in Los Angeles. And uh, the real reason was because my mom was out here alone and no one's, no one was left. And so I had to kind of take one of those, you know, left or right hand decisions. What do I do? And uh, so I, I said, you know, we're going back and, and uh, my boy's going to grow up with a grandmother and sit here in Akron, Ohio, where he has neighbors. So we did. But I kept my hand hot in off-road racing. You know, while I ran the program in 82, I would not allow myself to get into any race car for any reason, especially because all the teams are saying, get the, guy, get the guy in a race car. He'll hemorrhage money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew they were right. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, Bauer, you know, no, 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 don't get in that race car. Don't touch it. You know, step away from the race car. Um, because they didn't know that I hadn't, nobody knew I had any racing experience, but, but all those years of, of chasing, you know, racetracks in the Corvettes all over the Western States, I, I mean, I've already, I've already 
been racing and I already realized I'm an inmate now. <laughs> it's you can't you can't stop. True. Um, so so it wasn't my job anymore, but I was based in L.A., which made me you know closure to the off road races. So when an off road race happened, I just drove in and went on my own. Pretty soon things started to happen. Guy said, "Hey, uh, why don't we put you in the truck for?" This has happened at um, in Phoenix, in fact, at PIR, uh, the Randall Racing Group, out of Mesa, Arizona. Jeep people had a had a Jeep honcho, and Johnny Randall was was he was a, he was a horse, but he was fast and uh, and nuts. So they they said, well, why don't we put Bob in with Johnny? to give him a ride because he's been so nice to us over the year. You know, oh, give him a pay. This is really nice to us. Well, what they were really saying is they wanted to go out and scare the pants off of me. <laughs> and nearly did. Um, but uh, not quite. And so they found out in, the, in that PRR race that actually this man over here seems to understand what's going on in the race car. He must have been in a race car before. And they and the next time they said, hey, you know, how about how about you ride with Johnny in that desert? They offered me a co-driver job. And and Rich, I mean, I was like, I have finally arrived. You know, this thing I've dreamt about all my life. Now I can. Holy moly. <laughs> so that's that's what got me into the race car. And uh, then I started being a co-driver because it, it was really clear to me. It. it I don't know what everybody else saw, but it's clear to me that done right, um, that right seat, you know, that right seat could win a couple of races a year for the left seat if you do it right. So true. Uh, yeah. And um, and the right seat pays for nothing when it breaks. <laughs> 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 you know, it's, it was fun. You break a sector shaft, you end up in a tree. Hey, just chop the tree down. We'll get the truck back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I didn't realize that then. It's kind of like when I with my speaking. I didn't know at the time that I was developing a <clears throat> any kind of a valuable skill or, or otherwise. But I was. So I, I became known because Johnny Randall was kind of a terror on the track. I mean, he's 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 probably got as much flying inverted time as Bob Hoover, but, um, it, it led to one thing. And then, and then he said, well, this guy seems to be cool. Put him in with some volatile drivers or, you know, not volatile. Yeah. Volatile. That's a good word. That, that doesn't talk about sanity. Does it? No. So I'm not hurting anybody. That's good. And, um, then they put me in with Ivan Stewart for, in, in Charlotte's class eight truck. And, you know, one thing led to another and pretty soon, um, I got a call. This was, let's see, I started in the desert racing in the cockpit in 83 or four, I don't know, 83 or four, somewhere in there. And I had a series of rides and it was fun. I remember at the 83 or 84 Riverside Raceway, um, the world championships at Riverside. And I don't know if you have ever attended, but it was in those days, it was, you know, hundred thousand people. And, um, I was riding with Johnny Randall in that race. Well, he and we had a wreck. We we were coming up on a lapper and and uh, took us sideways to send us into the air. It was, it was we made we made ESPN's crash of the week on that one. 
And, uh, you know, I remember having the sky dirt, you know, it's just, I said, oh, crap, here we go. And, and I just, I remember hanging on to my belts, pressing on the floor to brace myself. And I kept my eyes wide open because, you know, Rich, I wasn't about to miss a crash like this. This is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, man, that, that was something. We got out. I remember my first sort of vision after the sky dirt was then there was this long sky dirt thing. I was seeing Mickey Thompson in the in my passenger side window. We were on our on the skin of our top. We were on our lid, tires in the sky. And I'm looking at Mickey Thompson hollering at me something. You know, he always had this little ball of spit on his lip that would fling off every now and then. And that's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they came right in through the window net. He was asking me if I'm okay. And meanwhile, my brain is saying, why is Mickey Thompson upside down? <laughs> <laughs> and then things started to clear up a little bit. It wasn't quite as foggy. <laughs> oh, man. And uh, so, we, we I mean, we were wrecked. We didn't win. We were in first place at the moment, but that didn't last long. And uh, so I got out, and we—I mean, we got out. We got back in the pits. You know how it is, Rich. You can drag the Hulk back there, and y'all standing around the pits, pointing, laughing at each other, and telling, "Well, you lived through that one, dude." But I had a second ride lined up with Chuck Johnson out of Rockford, Illinois, in his uh, Class Seven S Ranger. So I—I I mean, as much as we just had a crash, I had to get my hat and go over to get into Chuck's truck and, and run his thing in the mini—the mini metal challenge. We went for the. Heavy metal challenge to the mini metal challenge. That's what it was. And so Chuck and I are racing, and I'm doing what I can to help win, and it turns out we did win. And so, hell, people started saying, hey, you know what? You put Bauer in the car, and uh, the driver seemed to like it. And that just cemented it even more. So four or five years later, I get a call from, I think it was Dan Newsom at BFG, saying, you know, we, uh, I was talking to Jim Venable. He says, we think we'd like to put you in with Robbie. And I said, well, why? Because, <laughs> I mean, I I knew Robbie pretty well. I mean, I I, I know I had the opportunity to, uh, and I took it. I, I let him live when he was eight years old. He was outside of, when shooting bottle rockets in our hotel room or at, at, at Quintos Papagayos in Baja, well, Night four of Baja 500, and, and they, they were going off and they were claiming and scaring the crap out of me. And those houses are probably tinder boxes anyway. So <laughs> I went downstairs and uh, shared a moment of fellowship with Robbie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I kind of had him do a 180, which I think is important sometimes, and pointed him at the ocean. I said, Robbie, shoot him in the ocean. You will never miss. You'll win every shot. He did. <laughs> I didn't have to hurt him, but this is, this is, this is now 88, 1988. And they wanted me to run the 89 season with Robbie and I asked him why. And they said, well, um, Robbie is, he said, we got to get the cheerleaders out of his truck. He's, he was bringing buddies with him. And you know, they're all saying, Ooh, dude, fly it, Robbie, fly it. Well, I don't care how much you fly it. And you're in the air. You can't accelerate. True. You you can't stop, and you can't steer. Other than that, it gets smooth. I'll, I'll give it that. <laughs> but you're not. But you're not racing. You win races by keeping contact with the planet. You know, 
And uh, so they said, well, we want you in there because he's had those cheerleaders. And, uh, and, um, and I thought it's cause I had, a, you know, I had, <laughs> I, had I had, I had a sack, which they thought, I thought it was all because of my courage and everything else. And they said, and then they hit me with it. I said, oh crap. They said, Oh, Bob, no, 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 Bob, you're older. And stabilizing influence. And I thought older, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be older, <laughs> but I, but I took the ride. And uh, did some pre-running with Robbie. We got to know each other inside the cockpit, which, as you know, is nothing like sitting in the pit. You know, in the cockpit, things do change. Yep. It's 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 uh, absolute. And can't avoid it. Things ain't the same when you're in the race car with somebody. So uh, I know they're all hollering at me. I remember hearing on the radio we were in. Nevada, I don't know. One of the races, we were running pretty good. I had a pretty good clip. And um, I think this is where Robbie kind of bought into Bauer, uh, finally, you know, committed himself to me as a right guy. We're on the radio and we're booking along, and a, a guy named Dan Stutz, who used to run the Ford program, and you might have met him in your travels. Stutz was on the radio to us and saying, Robbie, Robbie, slow down, slow down. You're, you're flogging the truck. You're going too hard. Your time splits are too fast. And I heard that, and Robbie heard that, and I'm looking at the truck, and I'm saying, Robbie, fuck him. <laughs> I said, you're not on the bump stops. You're not playing I can save it. You're having a good time. Fuck him. Excuse my language, ladies and gentlemen, but that was a quote. <laughs> no worries. And that's where, and that's where Robbie kind of looked over me, and, and, and you could see him nod his head, and, and we went on about our race, and we overhauled it. But he wasn't beating up the truck. Of course, the truck was pretty solid because it was put together by Russ Wernemont. And that's, that's a big difference, too. So that's where Robbie and I kind of linked up. And uh, that year, that was kind of a special. That was, that was the first time everybody, anybody had ever won uh, the Triple Crown, they called it. Which was uh, first overall at the Baja 500. First overall at the Nevada 500. And first overall at the Baja 1000. Wow. And, and, uh, and it was really because Robbie didn't, didn't go faster, but he, he went a little bit slower, just a touch. And, um, we kind of figured together, I don't know if we talked about it. I know I have with other drivers. I couldn't tell you for sure about Robbie, but in my mind, the, the key to, to, uh, winning a, a desert race, a long distance desert race is not by going faster. You don't, you don't go faster. You work your skills at going less slow. Right. Less slow. You know, you, you pick up a tenth of a second here just by maybe maybe rolling on throttle a little bit sooner or maybe rolling off throttle a little bit later. You, you know, and bit by bit, buddy, you're an hour ahead. And, and that's what we did with Robbie. So it, uh, it worked. And of course, once you, once you've been Robbie Gordon's co-driver, at least it gave me fame. I didn't deserve, frankly. Um, <laughs> that's, that's when other people started saying, Hey, uh, what, what are you doing for the 500? What are you doing for the mint? Hey, 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 no, what are you doing for the, we'd like to have you in my, why don't you come into my car for a while? When you arrive with me, I bet I could learn a lot. Well, sure. Because I was a whore. 
<laughs> really. <laughs> More like a slut. <laughs> and uh, one thing led to another. And so I, I just I just loved off-road racing, like I said, Rich, from the very get-go. And, and uh, I did okay. I, I, I was part of a lot of wins. And I, I sort of, my wife still asked me, are you serious? You know, because I took, uh, I, I took myself out of off-road or out of the race car. I retired from the cockpit um, on purpose and maybe selfishly, don't know. But uh, it was it was in the 2017 Baja 1000, the 50th annual Baja 1000. And um, I, by then I was driving. Um, I'd been on the BFT factory team driving the BC cars for three years. And I said, you know, Bauer, I said, if you could drive a perfectly good car uh, across the finish line in La Paz uh, with a win at the 50th annual Baja 1000 when you're 72 years old. That's badass enough. Step away from the race car. Pick your time to go out. And so I did. And I haven't gotten in a race car since, even though it's a drug. I tell you, Rich, it's a drug. <laughs> do, you, do you miss yeah. it? Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, I really do. I, I, uh, I, I lied. I have sat in a race car <laughs> um, since, but with no motor running, no nothing. But, you know, it, it just fits. It just fits. I, you know, I feel like when you get in that cockpit, it, I, it was so serene. Even, even truly, even at 110 miles an hour with Robbie Gordon going through five-foot whoops, there is a serenity in there. Um <laughs> And and it just feels good to just sit in one, you know, looking at the gauges. I can smell the noise. <laughs> <laughs> and here and it comes. so yeah, <laughs> I can exactly. So, answer your question is yeah, Rich. I I do miss it, but realistically, I, I have to be, you know, I have to be realistic, and and I am. And there's a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, there's there's a lot of good people out there that deserve those rides too. And second, it doesn't really make sense to put a, a 70 plus year old man in the race car and expect to be competitive if you have to change a tire. Seriously. Oh, yeah. I get it. You know, yeah. And the whole idea of being able to do it on your own terms, well, uh, that was worth it. So, it, you know, I knew it was time to, to, to call it. Plus, I mean, I had an in cockpit career that lasted. Let's see, anyway, terrible at math. Let's see, 83 to 93 to 2003. 34 years. Yep. Okay. 33, 34 or 34 years. But here's the deal. The, the, the most important reason it was smart to just call it uh, realistically, I'd gone all those years, all those miles, and I'm not proud of it, but had, we had plenty of wrecks. I mean, we, I've flown inverted. <laughs> and... Um, I never lost so much as a drop of blood. Never broke a bone. I got one orthopedic massage after a min 400. I remember that. <laughs> That's a pretty but, good track I, record. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not sure if I, I retired from the cockpit or I escaped from the cockpit. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would love to get back in just for the feeling of it. But I, I'm, uh, I'm really actually more glad that I was able to just say, you know, Bob, you, you called your own shot. You picked yourself out when you wanted. 
and it was so much better than than not getting a phone call in July that says, "Hey, what are you doing for the bio one thousand? Because that's how you find out if you got a ride. Right. And if you don't get the call, you don't get the ride. So, call it selfish. I I, I wanted to do it on my own terms. I always wanted to get in the race car, whether mm-hmm. it was as a navigator or a driver during a race. Um, that well, it was before the fiftieth. I'd planned on racing with a with a guy that was building an unlimited um, Jeep speed, and I bought into the program. I was going to be one of four drivers, and then things went sideways. The car wasn't going to get done, and I decided at that point that when the 50th came around, I was going to try again, and I got offered to, to a seat and realized that I probably would hurt the team instead of help the team. I've wow. done a, I've done a lot of high speed driving in the in the desert um, uh-huh. while I'm setting up race courses, not in race cars, full race cars, but probably a lot mm-hmm. faster than street rigs need to be driven. I felt <laughs> I could handle a car well enough. My problem was is with contact lenses. Um, by then, my shoulder and knee were bad. And, you know, I've, I've been overweight for a long time, but I'm still healthy. It was just like, you know, if something happens, I have to drive at night, you know, contacts in, I can't see without my contacts very well, especially at night, I would be in a lot of trouble and could hinder the team. So I decided not to. And that was a, that was a hard choice to make because I wanted to be selfish and put myself in the seat and I had the opportunity, but I just, I just said, no, I'm not going to do it. Cause I always wanted to drive that last leg in the point to point race. And yeah. it was just, yeah. it just did not make sense to hinder a team effort. And so I pulled myself from that effort and mm-hmm. let the guys that really needed to and deserved to, to do it. What a courageous decision. That's, that's hard. Harder still, I, I believe, given your line of work. Yeah, because I mean, I've had are... a lot of opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Holy coley. That's just, you know. Uh, I, I almost hate it for you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> but I've come to the it's realization like... I've helped teams. I feel that the experience, the experiences that I've had in Baja helping teams that I truly helped whether it was on the radio communications or my first time to Baja in 2003, I was on a BFG pit crew with Jack Seipolt and we were outside a Catavina area. I think it was on the, the road out to fish camp and it was the year they, they, uh, they filmed dust to glory and I got to run the fuel board. First I was on the radio and then Jack moved me onto the fuel and the, you know, writing telling everybody who was going to be next and planning the fuel out as people were coming in because uh, it just I just had a knack for knowing who was going to be next by listening to the radios properly and yeah you know I got that position and then you know that taught me a lot um went down and and helped drivers at uh, the mint and a bunch of races and then got hooked up with Pistol Pete and then with 
Schaefer and Lance Clifford and the pirate four by four days of running the, the Jeep speeds and stuff like that. And I, I learned a lot, had a lot of, a lot of good times with a lot of good people. And one of these days, um, I will get back down to Baja and do some more, but I haven't been down back down to Baja since the 50th. And on the 50th, I helped with contingency and that was, or at final tech, I got to be the gatekeeper, you know, only the car and two people from a team in the, with the car. And, uh, that was, that was a fun day though. And, uh, you know, I, I just, that's more my speed I've realized, you know, and I, I just have to have to face the realization that I'm not going to be a racer. You know, I'm probably better suited to be on the other side in logistics or be that guy that helps, but that's okay. Oh, it's more than okay. You know, I, I look at it this way is that for people who say, you know, this role feels right for me. I like it. And then they carry uh, forth the, the same sort of execution of the job that makes it even better than, than if it was just a, a another another guy. Yeah, I think um, the best compliment know, it, best compliment I ever got was one of the drivers. You know, I always ended up being the radio communication guy for some reason. I don't know if it was because I I had a good radio or I asked the right questions or took the information properly, but I had somebody tell me before the race while we were doing our pit meeting before the race and down in Baja. And they said, okay, the only person I want talking to me on the radio is rich. Well, that means I had to shadow the car all the way, which was okay. Cause that I enjoyed that more than sitting in one spot, but then it, it led into a whole bunch of realizations. Um, first of all, I needed to know what kind of condition the car was in, what kind of condition the people in the car were in, where our next pit was, you know, what they needed to be ready. And you had to ask the questions quickly and precisely to get the information as quickly and precisely as possible and not chit-chat because the driver doesn't want to listen to chit-chat. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible because you'll hear half a syllable and you wonder, is somebody, are they trying to tell me something? Exactly. What do you do? You lift. <laughs> uh-huh. You lift and listen. Too much shit on the radio. Yep. <laughs> so yes. that's that's my thing is uh one of these days I'll go back down and hopefully help some teams. Um haven't figured out who or when that'll happen. Um but it'll happen. It'll oh, happen. yes it will. Yes it will. You know, it's you'll make it happen. Yeah, probably. All the way from all the way from Texas. <laughs> yeah, all the way from Texas right now. Yep. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you would think would be a great guest please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.